Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast. Join us each month to hear ideas, inspiration and practical advice from people making change through music. These conversations are hosted by me, Anita Holford of Music Education Works and Writing Services. So I'll be focusing in particular on breaking down barriers to music through communication and advocacy, but from quite a broad perspective. I really hope you'll enjoy them. And now on with the show. Hello. Before we start the podcast, I just wanted to let you know about three short resource-packed online courses that I've developed to help you or your team to win hearts and minds for music and grow your reach and impact. If you work in music for education, well-being, or social impact, you'll know how important communications and advocacy are to your work. But you often can't afford a dedicated person to devote themselves to this area, and it's difficult finding the right way to upskill yourself or your team. Many of the courses available are all about traditional arts marketing, putting bums on seats or getting visitors into museums. That's why I've developed these courses based on my experience of working with people like you. The courses available so far are in communication strategy, written communications and social media. They're all available on demand online and there are options for individuals as well as being great value for organisations because you can pay one price for up to 16 members who can learn at their own pace or even use videos and resources in team workshops. I hope you'll take a look. Just visit writing-services.co.uk slash courses. And now on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast. It's Anita here and today I'm joined by Mark Robinson, the founder of Rocksteady Music School. If you haven't heard of Rocksteady, they've been quietly taking music education world by storm, bringing in school rock band lessons to primary schools across the UK and also, importantly, ensuring they're accessible to everyone. Welcome, Mark, and thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I've been in touch with the organisation for various reasons over the years, so it is really great to talk to the person who started it all. Oh, thanks, Anita, and thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. So, first of all, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background. How did you end up where you are today, and what is it that drives you? I guess it's a, a long and winding path that I'm sure all of us have in the background. Um, I mean, I started learning music when I was seven or eight years old. We had violin lessons on offer at primary school. So I did those dutifully until the age of 11 and, and got to my grade three. And then I discovered, I'd say I discovered my passion for music, playing music shortly afterwards when I discovered the guitar and I took that up and then just sort of took off with my learning really and a couple of years later one of my mum's friends uh, had a younger child who was seven years old at the time he wanted to learn guitar and asked if I would teach them and I thought that's really exciting and I loved teaching and the rest is a lot of detailed history. So how old were you when you started teaching? Uh, 14. By the time I was 16 I'd built up a roster of most evenings in the week and uh, Saturday mornings as well. Um, it was great because it, it meant that um, when a lot of my other friends were going out to supermarkets and, and shops to get jobs, um, I was doing what I loved, which was uh, playing music and, and teaching other people to play. Oh, that's amazing. So how did you take that forward when you left school? So I did a gap year where I worked for a small music school in the, the local village that I come from and I got my first experience teaching in primary schools then. Um, I then went off to university to do, I studied philosophy and again established a teaching business where I was there. 
And then when I left university, I, I thought I'd try and bring a few of the things that I'd seen and learned together and really try and make some changes in music education from the things that I saw were working and, and the things that I saw that weren't. So you went from university to do philosophy and built your teaching business there. And then what happened sort of straight away after you left uni? At the weekends, I, um, I set up a function band to go out and play weddings and corporate functions and that sort of thing. And that left me quite free during the week to, I'd say, do more experimental things with the education side. I started a company called Rocksteady, and then I went into schools with the aim of really getting to the bottom of how to help younger children's first experience in music go well because you get so many adults who who say things like I'm not musical you know when you've got a, a talented uh, child their parents will often say things like I don't know where they get it from none of us were musical and you get a lot of children who start music do it for a little bit and then give up and I really wanted to get to the bottom of that and solve that problem I mean, back in my gap year, um, when I was teaching in a school, I inherited a few kids from a, a previous teacher and I started teaching them in a way that I thought they would like to learn that would work very well for my private students. And I got a phone call that night from music school saying, it seems you were trying to teach them a song. Uh, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, you should be working from their sight reading book. I was like, oh, OK. Um, and as I and as I was um, uh, working with somebody else, then that's what I did. I went back to, to the sight reading book. But it did. It, I mean, it turned out to be a, a real challenge to solve that problem and to improve things for, for the younger children, specifically in the four to seven age range. There was a lot that needed evolving to make music education and, and learning instruments suitable for them. So after I left uni, I went on a journey that was probably about four or five years trying to solve some of these problems and I was teaching both peripatetically and I was teaching classroom music in primary school so I was in one school for four out of the five days of the week and then a couple of other schools um, on the side and I was teaching every single child in the school which was you know really helpful to give me a really broad range of different responses to different music education different ideas and then I was also teaching peripatetically in that school but I did lunchtime clubs for the kids and I asked them what they wanted to do and at the time it was unequivocally would like to play in bands so I found ways to enable them to do that and developed what is now the Rocksteady um, pedagogy and all the methodologies from that and the thing that really hit me once I started to get it working was that these were children who didn't have instruments at home and some of them weren't having any lessons beside the half an hour at lunchtime per week with me but they were progressing a lot faster than the children that I was giving instrumental lessons to, despite the fact, you know, I was teaching multiple instruments at the same time. And the one that really made me think I've stumbled across something here that I really want to get out there and grow was um, I had a couple of kids who um, were not on such good paths at school. I had one particular child who was probably on a, a pathway towards exclusion. And through doing the, the band sessions after a very up and down start, he really started to find himself. And then within a year, he was a school prefect and was in the top math set. And I just thought, this is really powerful. I feel almost like a, a moral duty to get this out as far and wide as possible. And the mission from then on was, we want this to reach as many children as possible. And that's been our guiding light ever since. That's really interesting. So it's a very different pathway for a music educator, isn't it, than the majority of music educators. And 
Do you ever get questioned about, or did you at the time? Because I know that Rocksteady has a really strong pedagogy now, because obviously you've scaled up and that's essential. So I want to ask you a little bit about how that pedagogy evolved. Sure. But, but before I ask you that, you know, did you have any criticism or any concerns from either classroom teachers or parents about the fact that you haven't got a music degree or an education degree or you haven't been through teacher training? Uh, no, because I saw the results. The results were, were very, very strong. You know, I could uh, have a group of five-year-olds for half an hour and put them on stage and have them playing a song after that half an hour. So it didn't seem important to anybody at the time. I mean, I've got a grade eight in guitar. Not that that really counts for much. I mean, I think my specific role that I can play in, in music education comes from the, the fact that I haven't got that background. And that means I'm free to reimagine it as I see fit based on the children that are in front of me, uh, not based on historical best practice. Yeah. And I don't mean historical necessarily in a bad way. I just mean I never got taught how to teach, but I have been teaching continuously since I was 14. So absolutely classic informal music learning. You know, you're sharing with kids what you'd learn in a band anyway. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. But I think my strength is probably more teaching than it is music. I'm endlessly fascinated by how children learn, how all people learn, to be honest, but specifically children. I mean, I've felt since I was very, very young that it's important to get that right. And and this is kind of unusual, but I've got memories of being a kid at school. I can remember my first days and I can remember having thoughts really early on about how our teachers were teaching us and being aware of what they were doing, why they were doing it, when they were doing it, and building maps of that in my mind. And I remember being at secondary school, thinking some of the teachers were really getting things wrong by a lot of the kids in the class, sort of walking home and imagining how to make those things better. And I know that's not at all a usual thing for a teenager to do, <laughs> but um, it probably makes a little bit of sense if you think about what I've done since, I guess. Yeah, absolutely, a real calling then. Yeah, I, I suppose so. Yeah, it's always been there. So Rocksteady was just you originally then? Yes, it was me and uh, a few other musicians that I persuaded to come and work with me to try out some of these ideas, you know, people I played in bands with. One of my students who I started teaching, I would have been 18 at the time and he would have been 13. And then by the time we started with Rocksteady, I was 23 and he was 18. So he joined us and he's still with us now. So yeah, just a, me and a, a group of musicians. Yeah, so that's when it sort of started to grow. And then how did you take it to the next level? So I'm guessing this was local then, was it? With were you? Yeah, it was very local. It was all based around Portsmouth. And uh, the school was Northern Parade in Portsmouth. That was where we made all of our discoveries and really hit upon something that we, we felt was worth growing. And from there, I made a couple of key decisions, which I think really helped with the scaling of it. I mean, it's a classic entrepreneurial story, I suppose, in that it involved quite a lot of risk. But I gave up doing the bands at the weekend to focus on Rocksteady full time. I got a team of five people and uh, took them from being self-employed to being full time employed. And I think we had a few months worth of my savings that we could run off with that. And I said, right, well, we've, we're going to have to make this work. And the other thing that we did, which was supremely helpful, was changed the, because, because the kids were learning term by term at the time and they were paying term by term. And we changed that to month to month and said, there's no minimum commitment. You can cancel at any time and we'll refund the month if you didn't like it. If anything was wrong with our teaching, we felt it immediately. 
So it created the conditions to to rapidly develop. And then we were either going to survive that or we weren't. And so at that time, was it still in, in a reasonably local area? Yes, it was. It was, um, we were working out of our living rooms in Portsmouth. We then grew it to Hampshire. Yeah, I mean, it was all in Hampshire. And then we started expanding beyond that once we had the resources to do so. That next stage was, I guess, quite the biggest leap for you, perhaps, because I know that you work all over the UK now, don't you? So did you have support from a business organisation or something like that to, to scale it? No, no, absolutely not. The the way that we did it was every pound that we earned from it, we put back into it. It really hinged on um, our teaching going very well and it being very successful in schools. I mean, something that I was really, really proud about at the time was we did some early research to see what was the number of children or percentage of children in a school doing music before Rocksteady turned up and what was the percentage afterwards. And it was jumping from between three to four percent to an average of fifteen percent. It really hinged off the the teaching and what we were delivering going really well, and then that gave us the fuel to keep growing. Now we've never had any support from a business organisation, never had any funding from anywhere. Um, I really wanted to be able to do this self sufficiently, I suppose, because I felt that was the way that I I could keep all of this pure and on track with um, what the intention was. It sort of stands or fails on its own merits. And on- yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and I was going to some music conferences at the time and hearing all these organisations that were doing absolutely fantastic work, who were putting a lot of their energy into raising the next round of, of funding because funding was being cut. And some of my early experiences when I, I got schools to pay for a larger proportion of the teaching, you know, you'd have a, a round of funding cuts and then you wouldn't be able to deliver the music to the kids the next year. And that was heartbreaking. So I really worked hard to try and find a a sustainable model that could grow and wasn't going to be subject to those sorts of things. So can can you tell me more about what Rocksteady looks like today? And actually, we haven't talked about what Rocksteady actually is. So can you just sort of describe what a a typical lesson is like and and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Rocksteady is a peripatetic music service at its heart. We specialise in primary school aged children, 4 to 11. And what we do is instead of teaching them the instruments separately and sending in a specialist guitar teacher, a specialist drum teacher, we follow more the model that most primary school teachers follow, which is you're expected to have capability across a a range of subjects. Um, So we send in a, a teacher who can teach drums, guitar, keyboard, bass and singing. And they learn in a band from day one. So they learn their instrument in a context. And I think the the thing that really works about that is most children want to start learning an instrument because they heard something on the radio that excited them or they saw something on TV or YouTube and they think, I want to do that. That's great. Mm -hmm. Now, if they then take up an instrument and they're sat down age six in front of a musical school, which is a grid system and are then playing pieces that don't seem to have much to do with why they were inspired to do it in the first place. That's not a route that's going to suit most children. It will suit some children and you'll get some extremely talented performers coming out the top of that system. But I really wanted the benefits of this to reach as many children as possible. So playing in a band, we can get them playing in time with each other. We can we can get that feeling of playing a song or a version of a song that they're really interested in straight away. And then we can build the skill sets that are going to be useful to them as musicians off of that. 
I mentioned reading music as something that might not be the ideal first experience. It's, it's not that I'm anti-reading music at all. Um, I can read music. I still write music in school, but it's just that I don't think it's the best first port of call for most children. I think there's other ways into music that are just as valid and will reach more children more accessibly. So how does it work in terms of if I'm a young person and I come to my first lesson with you how long can I expect to be taught by you and what happens afterwards and I suppose wrapped around that question is how who funds it um, young person coming to the lessons, if it's our first time in that school, we'll be setting up a bunch of new bands and you'll sit down with your new bandmates and decide on a band name together, which is always a lot of fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> up the stairs in our, our main building where all the, all the office stuff are, there's all these band names everywhere. And yeah, it's, uh, it's quite fun to see what some of them come up with. Tyrannosaurus iPad was a great one. They've just been learning about dinosaurs <laughs> in, in, uh, in their lesson and then they saw an iPad. So Tyrannosaurus iPad it was. I had one year our band who were called lunch had lunch and that was <laughs> that was the only thing that came to mind but they they pick a band name and then they'll listen to a, a selection of songs they'll pick the song that they want to learn and then we'll get on with learning it I mean in the very early days when I was teaching I would just ask them what they wanted to learn and then I'd go through Spotify and we'd work it out together and they get to see me working it out as well which was a, a good learning experience for them oh, but, that's brilliant. and then I'd simplify it so they'd see the simplification process as well and it, it did actually teach them a lot but now we've got a bank of approved songs because we're working at scale you never know what's going to be in a music video or something like that so but they will get choice in terms of what they want to play and then it's all about getting them playing that playing a version of it that's accessible to them as quickly as possible and they will be playing something that sounds like the song um, within their first lesson and then how long can they expect to do it? Well, there's no limits on the program. We teach up to, if you're thinking in terms of traditional grading, something that's equivalent to grade two. Mm -hmm. So we do have extensions beyond that that's suitable for the right child. And we've had some children start with us in year R and go right the way through to year six, but there's no, they can join at any point um, along that journey. In terms of who funds it, so we found that the best way to reach scale with this was to go to schools and say this is free to the school and start with a parent funded model. But from there, once impact starts happening and we start seeing some of the life changing stories and the impact that it's having on the children, we then go back to the school and talk about pupil premium funding or any other funding methods that they might have available. And we also offer a free bursary space to every school. Sometimes it's more than one free bursary space, depending on the, the needs of the school. And um, so we, we fund a lot of children directly as well. And so that's not from a sort of separate foundation or anything that's from your profits? Yeah, yeah, that's just from us. So the other question would be, where are the instruments from? And yeah, where are the instruments? We, we bring them in and, um, and set them up. So we've got mobile stations again it's all about self-sufficiency they'll go to a school and teach a number of bands at that school depending on the the demand and you know the size of the school could be a morning could be a whole day i think we've even got some schools that are two full days that we're going for so really the school needs to be able to provide a space that we can work in and again we can be quite flexible we've got minimum space requirements but we work in libraries school halls spare classrooms so all about being flexible so do you find that sometimes schools start with one class in a year group and then the other classes want to want to join and it expands within the school like that 
Yeah, it can do. And it, it's really a, a big mix. Sometimes it smart, starts off really small and then grows. Sometimes there's quite a lot of interest straight away. I think one thing we learned really on is it's important just to approach it with the right intentions, which is to really up the level of music engagement in the school and then work with the school to make that happen. And you mentioned that it had a knock-on effect on lesson uptake. Are you, are you still finding that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it makes me really happy just to think there's so many more children that are now learning music. And instead of having a sort of crash with music and then going, oh, I'm not musical, I can't do it. They're coming out the other side of it and going, yeah, music, music's something that I can do. I know how to do that. I had a lot of fun doing that and I performed on stage that went really positively as well and it's not necessarily about everybody has to be a musician for the rest of their lives it's about the kids getting maximum positive benefit out of that while they're while they're learning with us and if kids do want to carry on making music by having lessons do you support the school to talk to them about using people premium funding or yeah absolutely yeah we have ongoing conversations and, and relationships with schools about that. Every school is different in this regard. So it's about finding what the right solution for the right school is. And often it's it's a blended mix. You've got parent funded, you've got pupil premium, and then you've got our bursary. And we try and get the right blend working for the school. There are some instances where charities or funding groups of different sorts have said, right, here's a pot of funding to fund a whole term and we'll go and do something like that. But there is is no one fixed model. I guess it's like a lot of music services. You have to be flexible because every school and every situation is different. Yeah, certainly. I guess when schools have been working with you for a little while and you've talked about pupil premium and other ways to fund a wide range of young people take part in lessons, then when those young people, as you've said, create more interest in peripatetic music lessons, I guess the school is almost primed to be ready and to be in that mindset to support those young people. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say what we do is not necessarily a replacement for peripatetic individual instrument lessons. I mean, if you want to really pursue skill on an individual instrument, we'll take you up to about grade two equivalent, but there are children under 11 who who want to and need to go further. And a lot of them do both individual lessons and rock steady lessons and find the two to be quite complementary because in one you're learning ensemble based skills you're also learning the skills of being able to play something very quickly um, with oral awareness whereas with the instrumental lessons you're typically learning a, a different skill set albeit on the same instrument so the two can fit together in a, in a very complementary fashion. And we were talking about pedagogy earlier. So can you just tell me really briefly about how you developed your pedagogy for Rocksteady alongside sort of scaling up? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's big. I think we could probably fill yeah. 10 podcasts quite <laughs> happily. Um, at the centre of it all is making sure that we're taking care of the child's experience. And that's their cognitive experience, but it's also their emotional experience and social experience, you know, within a group. What we try to do is make sure that what we're teaching is related to something that they're already inspired by and interested in, potentially outside of music and music lessons, and then make sure that 
the skill we're trying to teach them or the ability that we're trying to teach them is taught in the simplest and most effective way possible. And that we've got these very, very small building blocks that you can then build towards more complex skills. And that each of those building blocks feels like meaningful progress to the children because children should come out of every lesson as far as I'm concerned, saying that they've had fun and that they've learned something. Now, in order for them to have fun, you need a teacher who's right on top of managing the energy of the whole group. Um, the most popular seminars that we do at education events are manage energy instead of managing behavior. So that that's absolutely crucial. And then the actual curriculum that they're learning from needs to be built in such a way that it's flexible so that you can do planning in the moment and you can see the needs of the child in front of you rather than your lesson plan and make decisions uh, based off of that. But it still needs to build in a meaningful way towards an outcome that, that we can all see and agree is, is a good outcome for that child. All of these things really just emerged from wanting to take care of the child's experience to the, the highest possible degree. I think if you get that right, everything else falls in place. Yeah, and that's often so much what people in the DfE don't think about. Sometimes it feels sometimes as though that's lost with some of the policy. Yeah, it, it, it is. And it's because it's approached from an angle of, I guess, well, well-meaning people sitting around and going, what are the things that children need to know? Right, they need to know these things. Let's develop that into a curriculum. Let's take that curriculum down to the level of lesson plans. And then let's go and deliver it at these children. <laughs> let's, let's figure it out, you know, from that way. And then it's the child's job to mould themselves to be able to prove that they have absorbed this curriculum, which is based around largely knowledge. Whereas if you take it from the point of view of the child who's in front of you, and these children are all going to have different points of view. It's not like there's one universal point of view called the child's point of view, but you find something that they're energised by. And then instead of pushing um, information or skills or curriculums on them, you find a way to pull on that energy. Then you end up with a, a very different result. And like I said, I could talk for absolutely hours about different ways of, of doing this. And um, because our teacher training works in stages over, you know, four to five years of, of development. But I'm, I'm very proud of, of what we've done and that there's a lot of teachers out there delivering in this way. And we're really working now on trying to share that knowledge as widely as possible so it can have an impact on children who are not necessarily learning through Rocksteady, but could be in a in a maths lesson in a different country or something but because you know some of these energy management techniques or approaches to pedagogy have been absorbed by that teacher if that reaches one extra child then it's it's definitely worth it from our point of view it sounds really very similar to the inclusive practice work that's been done over many years and often funded by youth music and, and they have a, a, a mnemonic that was evolved from the alliance for musically inclusive england which is that a young person's music learning experience should be heard and it's holistic oh i'm going to forget this now holistic equitable <laughs> authentic relevant and diverse i think that's it they, I mean, they all sound really, really good. Um, I mean, we had relevant in our building blocks as well. It's absolutely got to be relevant. Otherwise, you're, you're teaching them to your ideals rather than theirs. And that's not empowering. That's the, yeah. that's the opposite of empowering. 
Yeah. You call that the rock steady way, don't you? You kind of encapsulate that. Yeah. So your tutors all go through that learning process and you just mentioned it's four years. Yeah. There's, there's four, it will soon be five years worth of learning in that program. Because there's a lot of layers to it, as there is to, to all teaching. I'm sure all teachers have been through this where you struggle on a problem for a bit and then you think, oh, I've cracked it. <laughs> because you've, you know, cracked that problem and you, you sort of build it and start noticing other problems or other ways that you could improve and ultimately reach more children or make the experience smoother for a particular child or, or something like that. And then you go on another phase of development so yeah it's all about supporting our band leaders which is what we call our, our teachers through that process until they're in a place where they're exceptionally confident in their teaching so they're clearly all inclusive practitioners and the inclusion is a, a thread that runs throughout your organization and your model is there anything else in your way of working that is particularly inclusive you know in terms of making sure repertoire is suitable for the group and culturally diverse yeah absolutely the repertoire is largely driven by what the children are interested in so i mentioned when i was the teacher We'd just ask the children what it is they want to learn and then we would figure out a way of doing that on the spot. And what we do now is we're still taking feedback from the children all the time about what they're hearing that they'd like to learn. And you'd be amazed at some of it. You know, you get children who come in who've been listening to their probably grandparents now, old rock collection. You get all, all sorts of different inputs. And then we, we go through them. We make arrangements out of the ones that are going to be suitable and yeah, we, we do have a filter that we put over it, making sure that there's diversity in our song selection. So yeah, we, we cover all of those angles. And in terms of inclusion, it's always been a big thing for us. And one thing that I'm very proud of is uh, Rocksteady Foundation. We take, officially, we, we all take two days a year as staff to go and work with charities, uh, special schools, other organisations that support children who for whatever reason might not be having it easy in life and we find ways to adapt our teaching to those environments. I think that's something that's very energizing for everybody and then within our teaching in schools we never say no to anybody learning music I mean I heard a, a wonderful story the other day from one of our teachers Scott who works in the uh, Devonshire area I had a pupil who has cerebral palsy and is in in a wheelchair and really wanted to be a guitarist now the, the easy option would have been to say to Aidan ah you know how about keyboard and persuaded Aidan into playing keyboard but no he really wanted to be a, a guitarist so the band leader Scott came to us and uh, having tried out a few different things he found that if he used the whiteboard marker on the guitar he could use it as a slide and you could lay the guitar across Aidan's wheelchair and he could still play in the band but it was it was causing some trouble with the band because they wanted to be more guitarists so we bought another guitar and got a proper slide and now Aidan's playing in that band and he's he's very proud of it so we do things like that absolutely uh, everywhere in the organization we start from the point of view of yes we can make it work that's so great to hear and do you know of the omi trust uh no i don't they used to be the one handed musical instrument trust i think but now they are a charity that just works to adapt instruments for individual young people just that's very cool been around for decades and but now they work a lot with hubs and music services don't know a great deal about them but heard them talk at conferences they're fantastic so um just occurred to me that i bet they'd be up for working with you 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'd be very up for working with them because, you know, there's no reason why differently able people shouldn't be able to play music. I mean, because we do free assemblies for schools um, and workshops all over the place. And I always just used to have this um, principle of just saying yes, no matter what. And I did assemblies in a, a few special schools where I, was, I'd go in and I'd be prepared to give give my assembly and workshop and they'd say, uh, you know, something like 80% of the children here are nonverbal. So um, would you just put on a gig? It's like me, put on a gig, not, not solo. Um, but yes, okay, I will. And I did. And it's amazing the different ways you, you can reach people through music. It doesn't have to fit one narrow paradigm. So we're coming to the close of our interview, actually, and I've still got loads of questions to ask. So sure. <laughs> really short now. So you've obviously expanded a lot in the last few years. How extensive is your reach currently across the UK and how, how large are you as an organisation? We're teaching all around England and Wales. We're employing 172 teachers currently full time by the time this gets aired it will be a little bit different counties i'm not <laughs> entirely sure but i would say probably all of them or most of them we're teaching as of today we're teaching 33,000 children a week but again that's constantly moving so depending on when you're listening to this hopefully more because you know our, our job is to reach as many children as possible yeah and do you know roughly how many schools it's over 1300 and again that's constantly growing so obviously music services and music education hubs are also working in schools across the uk do you have good partnerships with them yeah so we we've had a good relationship with surrey arts i mean i've done some training for them at their their conferences and we also did something that helped them with their funding where i think what we did was just give them some information about the children that we're reaching within surrey and i think that helped them out um, and we've got a few informal relationships with different hubs where they point some schools in our direction where they think that we'd be able to help and vice vice versa so yeah, it's all relatively informal. We don't have formal partnerships with hubs at the moment, but very happy to have any conversations with anybody who'd like to do that sort of thing. That's really interesting because it would be great to see you as a hub partner in all these places where you're, you're working. So it makes sense, doesn't it? You're delivering on hub outcomes, really. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't, you know, necessarily need anything for that. That would probably be um, one thing I put out there because uh, I, I imagine it could be easy to see why you'd think that if we were a hub partner, we'd be a drain on resources or whatever, but we're, we're very self-sufficient. That's always been very important to me. So if there's a partnership that means more children can be reached and there's better outcomes for more children, then we're definitely up for it. So just give us a call. We're very friendly and very happy to talk about possibilities. That's really good to hear. And I'm, I'm sure some of the people listening would be interested in that. It, a lot of good work could, could happen there. And I guess a music service or hub lead that doesn't know you very well might just be a little bit worried in terms of, in fact, I've heard it from somebody myself who said, well, they're competing with us. So what would you say to a music service or a hub lead who feels that you're competing with them and that they lose school customers as a result of your work? I think the thing to do is to take the focus back to the children and go, you know, how can we organise things to get the most amount of benefit to the most amount of children? Usually the, the things that we're doing are 
complementary to what music services you know that are associated with hubs are doing and let's just have a have a conversation about it i mean we're very friendly non-competitive people <laughs> interestingly enough we're, we're just driven on a mission to to reach more children so if, if if you align with that and you think that we could help in any way then we'd be more than happy to help that's really helpful and you've already demonstrated that for those music services and hubs that offer peripatetic lessons you're possibly increasing their market in some way yeah absolutely because if you if you get more children interested in music in the first place then i suppose using that competitive analogy then there's there's more to to share around but we've just got our job to do which is is to reach as many children as possible Oh, that's great. So just as we come to the end of the interview, has Rocksteady developed as you expected? Was this how you thought your dream would play out all those years ago when you were in your early 20s? I mean, when I was in my early 20s, I definitely didn't foresee this. Back then, I uh, guess I had curiosity and I had an intention to try and work on this and solve some of the problems for, for younger children specifically. Once we got into reach as many children as possible mode and past the early risks to any organization that's going to try and and scale then yeah I mean it's been playing out definitely how I hoped it would and you keep looking at where you're at at any given stage and then you try and make the best decisions that you can to keep moving forwards um it helps that we've got that single guiding light of reaching as many children as possible with with this methodology um it means I can filter all of our decision making through that and keep working on it Finally, do you have anything you'd like to share that other music education and youth music organisations can can learn from? I guess we're all on our own journey towards whatever we're trying to accomplish through our organisation. But one thing that I really value and that I'd like to see more of is it's a theme that's been running throughout this is putting the focus on the child and their experience. We just launched an award, a Rocksteady Award for Progressive and Inclusive Music Education. I was sitting on the panel for that and it was wonderful to see all these projects coming through where the education and the pedagogy have been molded to the needs of the children and was flexible enough to change depending on what the needs of the child was and it would be really cool if you know in the next couple of decades that became the standard in education um you started from that point of view rather than the point of view of the deliverables in the curriculum you still need to have both but which side does the pedagogy evolve from that, that's what I'd really like to see more of. Oh, that's a great point to end on. Thanks so much, Mark. It has been really lovely talking to you. I could fill six podcasts with this. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, always happy to come back and talk more. Thanks so much for coming on, Mark. And if you want to read more about Rock Study, I will share the link to their website in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Anita. That's the end of our show this time. Thank you for listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast and make sure to subscribe so that you get to hear about future episodes. If you'd like to be on the podcast or you'd like to know more about me and how I help music and creative organisations through communications, then visit writing-services.co.uk and get in touch. Thanks for listening and have a great week.